Bibles to find the scripture passage that we'll consider this morning from Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11 through 12. A brief introduction before we read the passage. Last week, we considered uh, the passage just before this in Ephesians. We considered who we were apart from the grace of God. And Paul showed us, as it were, before and after images of who we were before God's grace reached us in Christ and now who we are in Christ. Now, we were the walking dead, but after the wonderful grace of God reached us, we are now walking miracles of His grace. And because of that, God's grace changes the way, or it should change the way we walk in this world, right? In this passage that we're about to read here, it shows us how we must walk in unity, in unity. And so with that, let's give our attention now to the reading of God's holy and infallible word from Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11 through 22. Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in the place of two, so making peace. It might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off, and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So far the reading of God's word. Let's uh, pray together. We have a prayer of illumination that I'd like us to read responsively here in the bulletin. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, as many of you, or perhaps all of you know, this past week, the 2021 Summer Olympics started in Tokyo. 
And it's interesting to consider that the intention behind the modern Olympic Games is to allow for a glorious celebration of international harmony and goodwill. Now that sounds nice, but it is naive. Historian David Clay Large argues that the success of these games, their popularity, their success has always depended upon the instinct of tribalism. The idea that my tribe of people or my nation is better than other tribes or other nations. Now, with that said, I personally think that the Olympic Games, they do have some value, but it is hard to deny this, that the whole thing is very much bound up with the idea of nationalistic pride and even at times ethnic superiority or supremacy. And this was especially the case in the Olympic Games of, the, of 1936, just before World War II, which were hosted in Berlin, Germany, where Adolf Hitler used the games as, well, to put them on the world stage to promote the Nazi government and their ideals of ethnic supremacy of the so-called Aryan race. A few years later, author George Orwell argued that international sporting contests lead to the orgies of hatred. That's a very strong statement, perhaps too strong of a statement, but I believe there's some truth in it. Because it's hard, perhaps even impossible, if you think about this, and I was meditating on this, trying to come up with good reasons for it, but it's, it's nearly impossible to cheer for your own country in such international games like the Olympics without feeling, thinking, and desiring that your own people show themselves superior to other peoples, to other nations, as a display, therefore, of national supremacy. Why am I mentioning this at the start of this sermon? Because here in this passage, the Apostle Paul argues that through the death of Jesus on the cross, God has destroyed every concept of ethnic superiority. The blood of Jesus is the great equalizer and unifier. And so what I want us to see today is that through the death of Jesus, God has killed the hatred that ravages humanity that we see all around us. Through the resurrection of Jesus, God has made a new and united humanity in him with the very same access to God. We know, right, that the world today, it's, it's trying to force a kind of racial reconciliation, but it has no power to do it because the problem is ultimately in the heart, not simply in political or power structures, but it, it stems from the heart and the hatred there within. But Paul here, he's showing us that the gospel has made reconciliation not only a possibility, but a reality for us in Christ. By the blood of Jesus, we have the power to kill all kinds of pride that rages within our hearts, including ethnic pride. We have the power in Jesus as well, and the responsibility to embrace others who might look different and distinct from us as brothers and sisters in Christ, co-citizens with the same access to the one Father through one Savior by the same Spirit. And that's what Paul is driving at here in this passage for us. 
To see that, we'll, we'll consider three points. First, barbarians. Third, brought near, or sorry, second, brought near, and third, built up together. Barbarians brought near and built up together. First, the barbarians. In verses 11 through 12, the opening of the passage here, Paul shows us that there was a time when God's law, the Mosaic law, made an ethnic distinction in the flesh between two groups of people, the Jews and the Gentiles. Now, this term Gentile in ancient Greek is ethnos, from which we get our English word ethnicity. And so Paul is saying here, well, he's not claiming that there are multiple human races. No, the Bible teaches that there is only one human race, that we all come from the same stock, the same first father, Adam. And this view is also confirmed, as we know, by biology. At the same time, I want you to see this, Paul is recognizing that there are a variety of ethnicities with distinct stories, customs, and experiences in life. Just because we are all from the same Adamic race doesn't mean that our experience in life is all the same. Much of that depends on the place in which you were born, the people you were born to, and that is what is, in a sense, our ethnicity. Now here, Paul claims that for a period of time, only the Jewish people had real hope because only they knew the one true God according to the promises that he made and extended to them in the covenant that he made. God made that special covenant with Abraham, calling him out of the other nations, with Abraham and his offspring after him, setting the Jewish people apart, Israel apart from all other ethnicities, and he gave them the law of Moses. And that distinction between the Jews and the Gentiles was symbolically represented by a couple of things. First of all, the mark in their flesh of circumcision, which set them apart from other nations, but then also the temple walls of the temple in Israel that forbid the Gentiles from drawing near to God. In fact, when Paul wrote this, there was still an inscription on the wall of the temple in Jerusalem that warned Gentiles that they themselves would be to blame for their death if they passed into the inner courts of Israel's temple. The temple walls, we can think of it this way, the temple walls were basically like this large sign that said, other ethnicities keep out. You are not welcome here. And it's likely that Paul had this in mind, the temple walls, in verse 14 of our passage, when he refers to the dividing wall of hostility. And so Paul, he's saying that there was a time when other ethnicities, non-Jews, were considered rebellious outsiders. And the world was, at that time, basically divided into two groups, according to God, those who were circumcised and those who were uncircumcised, Jews and the Gentiles. And God's law called Israel to live in a distinct manner, separated from the world and its ways, separated from the nations, wholly consecrated to God in all of their ways and actions. But this is a key distinction key thing to recognize. God did not intend to fill them with a sense of ethnic superiority. No, as if they were 
better in nature than the other ethnicities. That's not why he separated them from the nations. No, God repeatedly told Israel in the Old Testament that he chose them not because there was anything special in them, not because they were more numerous or, or better or greater than the other nations around them. No, they themselves were not special. God's electing grace had made them special according to his favor that he graciously bestowed upon them. Not only that, but God repeatedly told them that they were to be a light to the nations around them. You see, God was calling them to be holy and distinct in all their ways so that other nations around might see that they belong to a good and just God. The objective of their holiness was to draw nations to the light of God, not to keep them forever away from God. In fact, as we know, in one of the earliest promises of God's covenant of grace to Abraham, he promised that through him, through his seed, through Abraham and his descendants, all the nations, all the ethnicities would find their blessing of salvation. All the nations would be blessed. And sadly, they forgot, it seems. They forgot often that God's plan was to bless people from all ethnicities with salvation through the Christ that would come from Abraham's seed, from David, Jesus the Messiah. And unfortunately, Israel often used their privileged status before God to look down on the other nations and to keep them at bay, to keep them away. And it seems that they felt at times this kind of superiority to others. Now, this was not something that only Israel dealt with. It is a human problem of pride that is within all of us. For example, in the Greco-Roman world, they used the term barbarous in Greek, which translated as barbarian, for what they considered all kinds of uncivilized people. And barbarian became a derogatory term to refer to all foreigners whose language and custom differed from themselves. We see not, not only in the Greco-Roman world, not only with Israel, but we see all around us, even today, that every ethnicity or nation has that tendency to feel superior to others, to look down on others as barbarians, uncivilized. What we need to see from this text is that we are all, we are all barbarians before God before the grace of God reaches us. We were all born with the same selfish pride in our hearts. We all have the tendency as well because of that to put up walls and barriers to keep those who are different from us far away from us. And this is a sad reality that we see in all of humanity, throughout all of human history. That is what we do to each other. But what did Jesus do with us? We who were different, we who were far-off barbarians, did Jesus keep us at a distance and cast us off forever? No. The very opposite. He came in our human flesh to lay down his life in order to bring us near to God. And that's what we see in our second point, the second part of this passage, that we have been brought near in verses 13 through 18, Paul shows us what Jesus has done to make peace and bring us near to God. 
Now, how did Jesus bring us near to God? Well, Paul says it was by his blood. You see, the blood of Jesus destroys all claims that one might make at ethnic superiority. How so? Jesus did not die for one ethnic group. He did not die simply for the Jewish people. No, he died for his elect people from every tribe, every tongue, every nation, every ethnicity on the face of the earth. And so, those early Christian believers who were ethnically Jewish could no longer say that Jesus' sacrifice or salvation is only for the Jews. They could not say that Jesus' sacrifice was for them only, and therefore, if you wish to be saved, you must become a Jew by circumcision and submission to all of the Mosaic law. They could no longer say that. Now, because of what Jesus has done, part of that good news that Paul was an apostle declaring to the Gentiles is that salvation is for all kinds of people, all ethnicities of the world. So in order to be saved, you do not need to become a Jew according to the flesh. You need to believe rather only in Christ and in him alone. You see, we, we judge each other according to the flesh, and we make distinctions and divide according to the flesh. But Jesus, Paul says here in the text, became our human flesh in order to unite us in himself by his Holy Spirit. In verse 15, Paul says that he created in himself one new man in the place of the two, making peace. What Paul is claiming here, scholars agree, is that Jesus has started a new human race, a new and united humanity, redeemed and restored by his death and resurrection. And so now, what we need to see is that Jesus gives us, as believers, a new identity that supersedes all other identity markers that we cling to and hold on to in order to see ourselves different from other people. All of those are demoted, and our identity that we have in Christ becomes the main identity for us in Him, giving us the power to unite across all different kinds of distinctions and dividing walls. We have the power to unite in Christ. My seminary professor, Dr. Ba, in his commentary, he says of this passage, this is a reminder that no one has any ethnic superiority in the church as if they come from some pure strain of godly people. The clear implication from Ephesians 2, 11 through 22 is that every single believer, no matter what his or her ethnic background, sex, social identity, income, or any other thing, has equal standing with all the saints by the grace of Christ our Lord. Equal standing with all the saints. How did Jesus give us his equal standing? Well, look at verse 16. Verse 16, it says that he has reconciled us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. You see, hostility and hatred that we see amongst humanity, amongst different ethnic groups and nations causing wars, it's not just a horizontal problem. That's what Paul is saying here. It's also a vertical problem between us and God. There is enmity between us and God because of our sin and rebellious nature. So what does it mean that on the cross, God killed 
the hostility, that he slew hostility. What was on the cross? It was Jesus. And so this must mean that Jesus himself and his body took upon himself all of the hatred and the enmity. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake God the Father made him, that is Jesus, to be sin, who knew no sin. He personally never sinned. And yet on the cross the Father considered him sinful as if he had sinned in our place. He considered him as the one who had been hateful towards others because Jesus willingly and voluntarily took that sin upon himself and became the target of God's wrath. And he shed his blood to forgive us our sins, to remove God's righteous anger from us. You see, because Jesus on the cross was cut off and abandoned and forsaken in our place, God now, instead of sending us forever away in his wrath and anger, which is what we deserve, instead of that, we have been brought near to God the Father through Christ and his shed blood. And that's why Paul says that Jesus himself is our peace. Reconciliation, not just horizontally with each other, but also vertically with God. And in this last portion of the text, Paul shows us how this fact that we've been brought near to God, brought near to each other, should change the way we relate to each other in the church. And that's the third point built up together. We see that in verses 19 through 22, that in light of what Jesus has done for us, making us into a new humanity and giving us peace with God, we have absolutely no right whatsoever to exclude others who believe in him. By the blood of Jesus, we all have the same access in one spirit to the Father. Paul declares that there are now no strangers or aliens in God's kingdom. There are no undocumented or no residents, no level of status below citizen we are all of equal standing in christ before god in his kingdom if we believe in jesus all equal members of the household of god all being built up together into the very dwelling place of god and therefore in the church christians have no right whatsoever to subjugate or segregate or even force assimilation or ignore others based on differences in the flesh. None whatsoever. To do so would be, as Paul says in Galatians, to build up again the very wall that Christ crumbled on the cross by his death. And would be, as he called out Peter, to walk not in step with the truth of the gospel. Because Peter was at a time not eating with the Gentiles, and in that way constructing again that very dividing wall, and Paul had to call him out for it. So we see that instead of a dividing wall, we read here in the last verses that God is building us together into a holy temple, a dwelling place of God by the Spirit. The implications of this text, this passage about ethnic reconciliation both in the church and the world are monumental there's so much here there's so much and we know that 
the world is still infected with ethnic snobbery and even hatred. And some of that will even be on display with the Olympic Games as well, as each nation is kind of competing for supremacy. But here we see how God has put to death the hatred that exists in humanity through the death of his own son. Also, by raising Jesus from the dead, God has made a new and united humanity wherein we all have the same equal standing and the same access to the Father, the same Spirit of God. The world may try and force reconciliation and peace, but it ultimately doesn't have the power to do it. But we do have the power in Jesus. The power is in his blood to kill our pride and embrace others as different as they might be from us as equal brothers and sisters in God's family, co-citizens in his kingdom. And so each week in our life together by his blood and his spirit, we have the opportunity to display to the world, the watching world, the beautiful, diverse unity that exists in the dwelling place of God that he is building by his spirit, his dwelling place that is both starting now and will be forevermore in the new creation. So may we seek and desire the very peace and unity that Jesus bought for us on the cross. Amen. Father, we thank you for this passage, and indeed, uh, we are humbled before it. Lord, I confess that I struggled with this passage in studies this week, trying to wrestle with all of its implications and all of the application that there is within it. And Lord, we trust that your Holy Spirit will continually work your word into our heart. And we ask, Lord, that even this day and the rest of this week, that as we think upon your word and meditate upon it, that your spirit would impress this truth deep into our heart, that the identity we have in Jesus would supersede all other identity markers and factors that we might lay claim to and demote those things and that Christ and our identity in him would be our main identity, the way we see ourselves and the way we see each other, those who are brothers and sisters in Christ. And may that unity that Christ won for us be a living reality in our fellowship and our love for one another day by day. Make this a reality. Only you can do it in our hearts and through us. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.